Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. Hello and welcome to The Agenda. I'm Stephen Cole. As the crisis in Ukraine escalates, what does this mean for the future of Europe? Are we, as some claim, facing a new world disorder? The conflict in Ukraine is showing few signs of subsiding, indeed quite the reverse. But just how might it all play out and what will be the lasting impact on the future of Europe? and indeed the global balance of power, the geopolitics. Joining me to consider those questions and more are Frank Ferredi, uh, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent, and Jamie Shea, former Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges at NATO headquarters. Um, first to you, uh, Professor Ferredi. Uh, your recent article, Ukraine and the New World Disorder, where you suggest this whole problem has come about because the U.S., and Russia are trying to decide the future of Europe. Uh, how so? Well, it is a complicated uh, process. It's not as if you can simply uh, blame one side or another. It's not a black and white uh, dynamic that we are seeing. But what, what I think what has occurred is that in the months, maybe even the years leading up to the invasion of the Ukraine, uh, it seems to me that Europe has been pushed out of the scene uh, the European Union hasn't played very much of a role in all the different uh, negotiations. And what has happened is that, uh, on the one hand, the United States has had this um, policy that communicates mixed messages. On the one hand, the United States, unfortunately, has uh, signaled the idea that it might be possible for Ukraine to join NATO, uh, thereby making the Russians feel a little bit insecure. Um, making the Russians feel that their security concerns were not being taken seriously um, by the American president, and at the same time as encouraging the Ukrainians to think that somehow this might be a possibility, that there might be a, a new uh, regime of uh, cooperation between the West and the Ukraine, in integrating the Ukraine much more into the Western uh, political sphere, Biden was also making very, very clear that when push comes to shove, they wouldn't really do very much to defend uh, the Ukraine militarily, and more or less indicating that uh, you know there is a red line, but the, when, when the Russians cross the red line, it will not be met with any serious force by NATO, by the NATO alliance or the United States. So on the one hand, you had that, and at the same time, what you had was, uh, I think, a situation where Russia felt that the, the West was divided. Uh, Russia felt that... Uh, uh, they weren't being very serious in seeing through the kind of uh, provocations that they felt was being targeted at them. I think especially after Afghanistan and the humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, I, they must have concluded that there was an opportunity there. Um, Jamie Shea, let's talk about your specialist subject, NATO. Should NATO have taken President Putin's security concerns about expansion more seriously? Well, uh, I, I, Stephen, I, I think they NATO generally think they NATO generally did, and of course, I lived uh, a lot of this period directly uh, with a front seat uh, at NATO headquarters. Uh, for example, after NATO began its enlargement, uh, it explicitly told the Russians that uh, under 
peaceful circumstances in Europe. It wouldn't put combat troops or nuclear weapons or infrastructure on the territory of the new member states. So this was really about Eastern Europe moving west rather than about NATO in a military sense moving east. And I remember for many years, countries in Central and Eastern Europe that had just joined NATO used to come to my office and complain that they weren't getting the American tanks or the F-16s that they were expecting. NATO deliberately tried to indicate to Moscow that it wasn't <coughs> threatening its security interests. We, we had a period where we enlarged NATO and President Putin came regularly to NATO summit meetings. We had a NATO-Russia council. We met frequently and cooperated with the Russians uh, in places like Afghanistan or fighting pirates in the Gulf of Aden. And, and I think you know, uh, that we also need to remember that you know, Ukraine's wish to join NATO only really became active after 2014 when Russia uh, annexed uh, Crimea and the Ukrainians, fearing a threat from Russia, uh, then changed their constitution to open the perspective of NATO membership. So in a way, you know, President Putin is like the sort of pyrotechnic firefighter who causes the problems. Jamie, I think Frank is also saying that uh, Moscow detected a lack of Western resolve. I agree with Frank on that. I definitely think that Putin did see the Trump years as implying that the United States was no longer committed to uh, NATO. I also agree with Frank that uh, Putin probably thought that the Europeans were so dependent upon Russian gas and oil or Russian money that they would never rally towards any serious sanctions. And I think probably he's been surprised by the draconian nature uh, of the uh, sanctions as, 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 as well. Uh, but uh, what Putin should have realized, of course, is that Afghanistan is vastly different from NATO's core mission of collective defense. Uh, many allies saw Afghanistan as a voluntary mission uh, where they didn't have to go. But when it comes to collective defense, everybody feels they're very much in the same boat. Do you think Mr. Putin will have been surprised by the turnaround and uh, a resolve that has been shown by the West? I, I think so. I think there was a uh a very clear perception on the part of uh, Putin and his colleagues that the West was divided, uh, that the West was, was, was in a sense, uh, not in a position uh, to kind of respond to his uh, assault on the Ukraine uh, with any uh, serious force. And I must have been uh, shocked by the way in which uh, sanctions were Im immediately imposed. Having said that, it is, I would say that it's still not the case that the unity has been cemented in a way that is uh, absolutely solid. I think there are still hesitancy on the part of different NATO members in the way that they are responding to Russia. For example, I think the Germans you know, are still very reluctant to uh, cut down or, or, or reduce and substantially reduce their energy dependence upon Russia. So there are still, uh, there's still the element of hesitancy there. And, and I think that uh, uh, so long as uh, uh, America and so long as, as, as NATO, uh, in a sense, um, leave the military uh, option off the table, uh, that unity will not be seriously tested. Because I think it's one thing to unite on providing relief aid for refugees, and it's one thing to uh, put sanctions on individual oligarchs. It's quite another thing to, 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 to take that next step in a unified way against the uh, threat. And, and Jamie, sort of, we all thought, um, speaking collectively, that the Cold War was over. Um, but in fact, this may well have started a new geopolitical Cold War. And I'm thinking about what the Chinese ambassador to the United Nations, who in the last few days uh, said that um, 
in order to find a solution, you need to abandon the Cold War mentality. Uh, is that right? Do we have to abandon a Cold War mentality? And how much of NATO's existence um, is down to a Cold War mentality? Well, I, I certainly feel that um, we are going to obviously be in a much more confrontational posture with Russia. Uh, I think that is just the reality, Stephen, that's going to result from this crisis. I mean, Russia clearly uh, has made it, uh, has said, uh, Putin has said many times that it's not happy with NATO. It's not just NATO enlargement that Putin is against. It's NATO per se that he still regards as an adversary. Putin has made it clear that he wants uh, not simply to bring Ukraine back into the Russian fold, but to overturn the entire European security order. I mean, he's made demands on NATO to stop defending half of its membership, which would clearly sort of be tantamount to the disintegration of NATO uh, uh, per, per se. Uh, did, he have, recently, did he have legitimate uh, security concerns? He's been challenging the West in Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere. So I think we have to wake up to the fact that you know, we have a Russia problem and it's going to take a long time. And I agree with uh, Frank in the sense that we're going to have to stay united, not just for the short term, but the long haul, uh, before we are able to sort of uh, uh, deal effectively with Russia. So certain aspects of Cold War containment, yes, I, I think are going to have to come back. Did he have legitimate concerns about security on his borders? Yes. Well, uh, you know, uh, again, you know, if you look at the situation uh, before uh, Putin uh, invaded Ukraine, NATO had only 4,000 troops. I mean, that's hardly a serious combat force to challenge Russia. Um, as a tripwire stationed in the Baltic uh, states and in Poland, multinational uh, battalions, uh, 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 we had, uh, like we, NATO, very few forces in the Black Sea uh, area. Uh, and those forces were rotational. They weren't uh, uh, permanent and they weren't heavily armed either. Uh, with little air support. So uh, I don't think Putin looking out, uh, seeing Finland and Sweden still outside NATO, uh, would have thought that NATO posed any kind of uh, military uh, uh, threat. Well, I, I think that Jamie is right when he, made, when he said earlier on about how NATO went out of its way uh, not to put pressure on Russia. And certainly until the, the Maidan revolution, uh, there was a kind of understanding uh, that uh, NATO wasn't going to uh, expand into Ukraine, wasn't going to create any kind of pressure on Russia. I think laterally that has changed. I think one, one of the things that has occurred in recent years is that the State Department in the United States has become much more ambivalent about some of these uh, promises that were made in the past. I think it's very tragic and unfortunate that uh, Russia and the Ukraine became entwined in American domestic politics during the Trump years and, and even now, to the point at which uh, a lot of policymakers failed to make a distinction between geopolitical interests and what was taking place domestically in Washington. And I think that uh, to some extent there was a, uh, that there's a sense in which uh, Russian insecurity was, is understandable in light of some of the changing uh, postures that developed within the United States in particular. And I think that's that doesn't excuse anything in terms of the invasion of the Ukraine, but I think it does provide a context as to why it is that the, uh, the balance of power situation unraveled so fast in recent months. OK, let's talk about the geopolitics and the possibility of the change in geopolitics because of the invasion. Uh, as you both know, Sergei Lavrov is an extremely experienced foreign secretary, Russian foreign minister. And he said if the West decides to drop a new iron curtain 
uh, on Russia. The country, Russia, won't be too worried. He says they'll just look for development opportunities elsewhere. Now, what do you think that that says about the sanctions and the pressure that's being brought to bear on Russia in the last few weeks? And how will it change the geopolitics? First of all, uh, Frank, and then Jamie. I think there's an element of bluffing there, because uh, the idea that somehow uh, Russia is going to move entirely eastwards and maybe forge a, a new relationship with China uh, is not something that is realistic in the long run. And of course, Russia can take a lot of punishment in terms of sanctions. It's not a democratically accountable system where public pressure has got the same role as here in the West. But I do think that uh, what's been happening by, uh, by, by the Russian uh, uh, sort of oligarchy is an attempt to kind of create the impression that they can, they, they, they're not particularly bothered by anything that's been thrown at them. And they can easily readjust and redeploy their resources elsewhere. I think that is, uh, that is just merely a, an element of bluffing to uh, kind of create the conditions where they can negotiate maybe okay. later on on this basis. All right. Uh, uh, Jamie, just rhetoric? Well, I, I totally agree with Frank on that. I, I think the bluster is part of the Kremlin's uh, playbook of trying to appear unconcerned and nonchalant. But uh, Russia uh, sends uh, well over 50% of its oil and gas to the West, even oil to the United States, which the Americans are now trying to shut down. Uh, and China is not going to be able to substitute entirely for the finance, the energy revenues, the technology that <coughs> Russia is going to be losing as a result of sanctions. The Russian oligarchs don't have their money in Rembibi, in, in banks in Beijing. They have that money in euros and pounds and, and dollars uh, uh, in the West. Wang Yi, the uh, foreign minister, state councillor, uh, has spoken about the need to respect the, the territorial sovereignty uh, of states. I, I think that, you know, Beijing will be a bit hesitant to be about being dragged in to every piece of reckless adventurism by Putin. It wants to be a responsible international actor. I just want to get personal for our, that my last question. Uh, to both of you. American officials say they're very worried about Mr. Putin's state of mind. Uh, they say he's isolated. They say he's out of touch. Uh, and if he is prone, as the American officials are alleging, uh, if he is prone to miscalculation, has the use of nuclear weapons become conceivable? Um, and uh, Jamie first. Well, I think a lot of it is bluster. Uh, as Frank was saying earlier, designed to intimidate us, to, to frighten us. I mean, President Putin has been waving the nuclear weapon around for years. He even mentioned nuclear strikes uh, when he gave a speech to a group of Russian Boy Scouts uh, a couple of years ago. So so this is not new. And I think the way, the calm, measured way in which the West has responded, the fact that the United States this week has cancelled uh, ballistic missile tests so that there could be no misreading uh, of Western restraint is the right way to go. I, I am a little bit worried, but maybe that that's because I'm uh, an East European by birth, and I've seen how these things can very easily get out of hand. And we should be a little bit concerned that uh, uh, the idea of a nuclear war is not something that is merely a, a dystopian vision uh, uh, that's entirely confined to Hollywood films. Frank Faridi and Jamie Shea, thank you both very much for joining us on the agenda. Still to come here on the agenda. As hundreds of thousands of people flee the Russian advance, what should the world be doing to help Ukrainian refugees? Welcome back to the agenda. 
In just over a week since Russian soldiers moved into Ukraine, more than a million Ukrainians have fled that country, the majority into Poland. The head of the UN's refugee agency, Filippo Grandi, has said in his more than 40 years working on refugee emergencies, he's rarely seen so rapid an exodus. So just how is this refugee crisis likely to play out from here? Joining me now from New York is global spokesperson for the UNHCR, Catherine Mahoney. Um, Catherine, a million people, probably more uh, than that, uh, that's the latest figure, have moved out of Ukraine um, at great speed. Um, this is unprecedented, isn't it? Absolutely correct, Stephen. Thanks for having me. You know, as you said, this is Europe's largest refugee crisis this century. And most of us here at UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, we've never seen the likes of such a rapid exodus before. Um, and it's important to recall that these are one million people who have fled, one million women, one million children, elderly people, you know, disabled um, and these are the refugees that have made it to safety into neighboring countries. Um, but I do feel obligated to remind everybody that the crisis continues inside the borders of Ukraine, where the conflict continues to rage as we speak. So as the bombs still fall, as the military offensive continues, we know that until the, we can silence the guns and return to dialogue and diplomacy, people will continue to flee. And talking about those displaced internally, what kind of numbers are we talking about? I'm going to be very honest with you, Stephen. It is very hard for us to tell. We all know that we've seen these images. We know that people are hunkered down in, in bomb shelters and basements and subway systems. And the reality is that the humanitarian, my colleagues, the humanitarians and everybody else that are there to try to meet the immense needs inside the country, if the bombs are falling, we also have to take shelter. Um, if we cannot guarantee safe passage, safety for us to be able to deliver aid, it's very hard for us to get an accurate picture in this fluid, violent, insecure situation. So the reality is that we don't exactly know how many folks are in need. Um, we know that the needs are immense. We know that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have been uprooted from their homes that have moved from different parts of the country to find safety elsewhere. Let's not forget. Anybody who's been forced to flee because of violence is going to try to stay as close to home as the fighting will allow. Um, but until until the violence stops, we don't really have an accurate picture and we need safety for the humanitarians trying to help the help Ukrainians on the ground. And of course, internally, those families will be divided. I, I suspect the men will be fighting and the women and children will try and find places of safety. Is, is that what you're seeing? You know, what we do know about the, the demographics, about the dynamics of this crisis is that those who have fled, so of the one million refugees who have fled, the vast majority are women and children. Now, of course, women and children have very specific needs when it comes to a conflict zone, when it comes to flight. Um, women and children are often more, you know, exposed to very specific risks like trafficking, like exploitation. Um, so our teams on the ground have are aware of this and they're looking for this to better protect the women and children who have fled, as this is the majority of the population that we're seeing outside outside of the country. That's the scourge of refugees, people traffickers. Are you trying to educate uh, the refugees to say, stay away from these people and, 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 and warning them about what they could get into if they get involved with the people traffickers? 
you know, in any situation like this, whether it's Ukraine or anywhere around the world, trafficking is a massive risk. Um, in terms of what we're seeing right now, this, you know, this is part of a bigger picture of all of the issues that we're trying to we're trying to educate people on. We're trying to to tell Ukrainians what services are available. The needs are immense. People need shelter. People need shoes. People need warmth. It is a frigid uh, winter. Um, where people are fleeing from and where people are fleeing to. Um, people have immense mental health needs. So trafficking is a massive aspect of this conflict, of this situation, and is one of the very th issues that we're trying to watch out for and educate people on. But again, it's part of a massive, you know, our massive response, along with the, go the governments where people are fleeing. Can I just go back to the beginning and the, uh, the, mi the number of a million you're quoting leaving, but... Uh, Filippo Grandi has estimated up to four million could leave. Now, a majority at the moment are going to Poland, but what about the other countries um, taking these refugees? Slovakia is one, I know Moldova. What's been the impact in those countries and how are they coping? And what are you doing to help them cope? No, absolutely. And I think we've all, um, we've all seen incredible solidarity, incredible hospitality from the neighboring countries who are opening their borders, who are opening their homes to Ukrainians and others in need. This response is massive. It is so welcome and we're so appreciative. We're so appreciative of this. But the reality is that, that such numbers will strain local resources will strain states' capacities to welcome. And that's absolutely why we need to continue to support these countries so that that warm welcome uh, does not wear out. We've appealed two days ago uh, for a massive refugee response. Um, these communities, these countries need support from the international community. And more than anything, they need the crisis to stop. They need the military offensive to stop. If this continues, more people will continue to flee. You mentioned the physical well-being and women and children needing more perhaps than, uh, than men. Uh, does that mean they're suffering more mental trauma? And if so, how are you coping with that and what uh, actions you taking to help them cope with that? Absolutely correct. I mean, anybody that is forced into a bunker um, and is hearing the bombs fall, that is exposed to the sirens, is forced to uproot from their, their home. These are the invisible wounds of war. We see this in Ukraine. We see this around the world in all of the countries that we work. You know, the WHO estimates that one in five people who are exposed to war, conflict, violence will suffer, uh, will, will, their mental health will suffer from this. That's why we integrate mental health and psychosocial support into our emergency response. We have colleagues on the ground in neighboring countries who are addressing this very issue, who are looking for people who are suffering, uh, whose mental health is suffering and have immediate needs to, to really treat these invisible wounds. I mentioned uh, earlier, Catherine, about women and children trying to get out and leaving men behind. But I've also read reports of women leaving their children at the border and going back to fight. Is there any truth in that? You know, we're all seeing the same reports. Um, and I think our collective hearts are breaking at any thought of that situation. 
And that's exactly why we are there at the borders along with the along with the states looking for unaccompanied children, looking for, you know, anybody with an increased risk um, in this conflict. We have our specialists on the ground. We have our protection people on the ground who are immediately referring anybody who needs it. These are very specific needs and very specific risks. And we are ready to respond, but we need more support to do this. And when you say you need more support, are you calling on the rest of the world uh, outside that region, perhaps, to do more to help? Well, like I said, the regional response has been massive. You know, folks are bringing meals. Folks are opening their doors. People are are paying for for Ukrainians to stay in in private hotels. But this has to be an international response. Um, we have appealed as part of the refu refugee response for 550 million to help send more resources that are immediately needed to to respond. You know, we now know that we have one million people who have fled. But as you say, we are expecting that this could, number could go up to four million. These countries need support so that this warm welcome does not wear out. Catherine Mahoney, Global Spokeswoman for UNHCR, many thanks to you for joining us here on the agenda. Thank you, Stephen. Coming up on a future agenda, solar, wind, tidal and nuclear. Are Earth's natural resources the only path to a sustainable energy future? But for now, from me, Stephen Cole, and all the Agenda team in London, it's goodbye.